Welcome back to Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindset Stories of Failure and Resilience in Academic Research. I am Alex White, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Crystal Nunes, and we are thrilled to introduce today's guest, Julia Pia. Julia is a Toronto Metropolitan alum, completing her Bachelor of Science in Chemistry in 2020. Following her undergraduate degree, Julia received a Master of Science in Chemistry from the University of Toronto in 2022. Today, Julia is the CEO and founder of Ment Projects, a mentorship business that enhances career development through innovation and collaboration. One of their resources includes the Mentorship Podcast a series that highlights diverse careers and has featured several TMU alumni. As a producer and host, Julia interviews professionals on their academic journey and career path. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the introduction. It's really interesting being on this side of things. (laughs) Absolutely. Would you be able to describe to our listeners the goal of MEM projects? Yeah, for sure. Well, definitely I was driven and inspired by some of my own experiences of failure and challenges throughout my career where I really would have benefited from guidance and mentorship. And I've also seen that in my own students as well. I'm observing a lot of the gaps within their career decisions and how they would benefit from something like this. And so that was kind of the driving force. But the goal of Ment Projects is to create more accessibility for mentorship and in a modern way. And so our purpose is to enhance the career development and academic journeys of our audience. And when we talk about mentorship, what we're really focusing on is guidance. So in terms of helping our audience with understanding the steps that they need to take to pursue a certain career path, as well as bringing in diverse careers. Mm -hmm. So it's so common that we see the traditional careers at the forefront, especially in the early stages, you know, doctor, lawyer, and you know, if you're interested in healthcare, people will tell you to go into into medicine right but there's so many more ways that you can incorporate your skills and passions and so that's another form of mentorship that we're focused on where we're trying to help people explore their career opportunities in a more um, insightful way and yeah so we have quite a few services and products but we've only just launched this year early 2023 and so some of our products are still being built behind the scenes and they're not released yet so um, that's definitely something to stay tuned for but one of our main resources that's available right now is our podcast which is the mentorship podcast that you mentioned at the beginning so yeah yeah. i actually listened to the episode with dr imogen co and i loved it it was great i loved um hearing how she was like uh this i wanted to build this kind of scrappy science program at TMU mm-hmm. and it's, it really is it's still to this day I think very much is if you if you talk to the professors who've been here for a while they're very um, very much like this was a startup this was like a tech yes. startup in a yeah. way 
Um, But I also think it's beautiful that you're highlighting alternative careers, Mm because I do think that that is a huge problem. Everyone thinks they need to go to med school. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. you don't don't have to go to med school. You have so many options. You can do so much with a degree in the sciences. It's amazing. Yeah. It's been great having different people on the podcast as well. We've really spanned across a range, a broad range. We've had people from pharmacy, from physics, and even psychology, law, like outside of STEM as well. Mm -hmm. And it really shows how you can bring in different skill sets. And, you know, even with the pharmacy episode, it shows how pharmacy is not just about being a clinical pharmacist. There's so much more that goes into it, so many more opportunities. So, yeah, really going through different careers and bringing that to the forefront. Uh, You actually just touched on my next question. (laughs) I was wondering if it's more focused towards the sciences Mm -hmm. or if you take a more interdisciplinary approach. Yeah, I mean, definitely my background is in STEM and that's where Mm -hmm. my challenges were. And I want to help people consider STEM because a lot of my students don't and, Mm -hmm. you know, the fear of failure, all of that. So STEM is definitely a passion of mine, but I want to make sure that it's inclusive for everybody because Mm -hmm. there are people who want to learn about what a career in law looks like or psychology so we're definitely interdisciplinary in that in that regard yeah perfect that's also a goal of our podcast as well (laughs) both of us coming from a science background but we too want to ensure that we have that representation across all sorts of disciplines absolutely so with that in mind what or who were the key moments of inspiration in your journey from being a master's student to now being a ceo what drew you to this line of work Okay, well, I think even going a bit before my master's, I'll talk a little bit about my challenges that I experienced in undergrad and even just getting to undergrad. So in high school, I even in undergrad, I think that I did everything possible to stray away from science. Um, Hmm. just because honestly, it's so interesting where I am now looking back on it and dissecting that I was I did really well in sciences and in math, but I think there was just this overarching stigma that it was hard. And I heard that from my peers or just in the media. So even though I was good at it, I didn't want to pursue it because I didn't want to have to face those challenges or potential failures. And so I actually didn't take any of the sciences in grade 11 at first. And that's kind of, you know, when you have to choose from grade 10 to grade 11 sciences now optional. And so I didn't take any of them. Luckily, in my first week of grade 11, I realized, okay, maybe I should just to give myself the option. I also started thinking about nutrition as a career, which requires sciences. Mm -hmm. So I put those back into my into my course load and ended up starting off with going to nutrition for university. And in my first semester, not all of it was very heavy science based. Mm -hmm. There was actually only one course, which was chemistry. Mm -hmm. And again, I did well in it, but I was so intimidated by the lab perspective. Plus, you know, just transitioning to undergrad in general, there's a lot going on. I still did really well in the course, but I felt like it was too hard for me so Mm. that made me stray away from sciences again I actually left that program I went to York for a little bit and took liberal arts so that was in that time where I realized okay no I'm really missing the sciences I've been doing well at it maybe the challenge isn't something to fear Mm -hmm. it's something to embrace and then that's when I ended up coming back to TMU fully immersing myself now in chemistry so really taking on that fear of failure that I had 
And you know, from then on, I was able to pursue chemistry and didn't really look back from there. But that was definitely my first experience of feeling like a failure because going through the first two years of your undergrad, switching majors, switching universities, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's where, you know, I'm starting to see the need for mentorship, for guidance. If only I had someone at that time to explain to me how my decisions would then lead to future career options and how I was closing doors for myself, that would have been really helpful at that time. So that's definitely where, when I mention my own challenges, giving inspiration for ment, that's definitely one of them. And then in terms of leading to this career as well, because I've also worked with a lot of students as a TA, as a tutor, so that has also led me to want to start a business in regards to mentorship, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy how you're like 16 and you're being asked to make a decision about the rest of your life. And no one really tells you about like, if you don't do this thing, you've closed the door. Mm-hmm. But everyone says like, if you do a thing, then like you're opening doors for yourself. But we don't talk about like those, those sciences and yeah. the maths. Because even when you're like in grade school, they're like, okay, so you're going to either do applied math or you're going to do academic math. Now I know that's changed, but yeah. it's mm-hmm. still like that I was like, I was 13. Yeah. I was 13. You're asking me to make decisions about the rest of my life. I'm the yes. same way. I went I went to school for uh, film at U of T. Okay. And then I came here. So okay. I'm a mature student. I was not mm-hmm. a science kid. I shut those doors for myself. And no one at any point was like, hey, maybe, maybe you could, maybe you could keep that door open, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. And then just going through the challenge. I mean, for you, maybe it was different. But for me, then I'm coming into chemistry, I'm two years older than most of the students, which is totally okay, but it's just, that's where you start to feel, it can just get difficult, right? Second guessing yourself and things like that. So much of what you said resonates with me and my own experience at that time in my life as well. Uh, Firstly, the lack of guidance or mentorship, I too face that challenge. I'm a first-generation student, so I didn't have, you know, parents or family to give advice. It was really just navigating it on my own. And in terms of selecting majors or selecting courses, I found chemistry and physics to be really challenging in high school. (laughs) And I had to work especially hard in those courses in order to perform sometimes not even as well as other classes. Mm -hmm. So when I selected my major, I too am a York alum. I went to York for undergrad. I strategically selected a major of physical geography. It was a science stream. It was a bachelor of science, but I selected physical geography because in the first year required courses, there was more flexibility in what which classes you could take. Mm-hmm. And so I could avoid chemistry and physics. And that was the <laughs> reason why it was a huge motivating factor in selecting that major, which looking back is not perhaps the most recommended um, decision-making process in that I too was making decisions due to a fear of failure Mm -hmm. and not wanting to perform poorly in first-year chemistry. And then as I advanced, I 
took some more science-based courses, learned how much I love biology, added it as a minor, and then ended up getting my PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology mm -hmm. and just committed to that science stream moving forward. Yeah. But I too, you know, when I was 17 years old, starting undergrad, was making decisions to try to minimize risk of failure. Yeah, yeah. I also was a first generation student too, so yeah. understanding that as well. Yeah, it's definitely hard when you don't have someone above you, even for my cousins, I'm the oldest cousin. So oh, I was wow. the first one for yeah. everything, yeah. you know, having to figure it out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the having an older sister was really helpful, I will mm -hmm. say that. Um, but my parents didn't like go to university in the same, like they went here for uh, theater school. Okay. So oh, yeah, so I'm like I'm really truly the first one in my in my immediate family that's experiencing this uh, science. Sci and it's so different. It's mm -hmm. so different from like an arts degree. It really yes. is. Like yeah. you're always doing something. Yeah. <laughs> you never don't have an exam or an assignment due. Whereas like when I was doing film, it was like I had weeks where I just didn't have to do anything. I was doing readings, but that was it. It was so easy. I was like, bring that back. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I hear a lot of my students, especially in um, earlier level courses, mm -hmm. challenge, uh, facing challenges with the, balancing the course schedule it's because impossible. you have those three hours of lecture plus weekly labs on top yeah. of that yeah, as well. Yeah, every class in first year basically has a lab mm -hmm. um, and it's huge. Like they're huge. The physics labs, you would know because you've, you've done it. There them, were yeah. formal reports. Mm -hmm. There are full yeah. formal reports that you have to write every other week or something yeah. like that. And it's like, you're, oh my gosh, it's so crazy. And then you have a chemistry lab, which isn't easy. And you have the biology labs, which yeah. aren't easy. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It was the pace that was definitely the most intimidating, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of career pathways and trying to make those difficult decisions, did you grow up thinking that one day you wanted to be the CEO of your own company? Mm -hmm. Okay, I love this question. I definitely always had an entrepreneurial mindset. Even starting back to when I was 10, I was always trying to find ways of how to make extra money, um, taking on extra chores and seeing if my mom would give me a little bit more allowance. And then also, you know, I would do things like building trust with my neighbors and seeing if they would let me dog sit, things like that. Um, so I definitely always had that hustler mindset. Um, in high school, that's kind of when I had my first exposure to a more structured type business. I started my own tutoring business at that time. So at first it was a volunteer basis. It was just something within my school. But then other students outside of my school heard about it. They wanted me to be their tutor. And oh, wow. so it became more of a paid thing for me. So yeah, that ended up, I still tutor to this day. Tutoring has really never left my life um, because of that. So yeah, even in high school and then undergrad, that was my part-time job. I had 10 to 20 students a week and had to learn how to do the operations, the finances. I made contracts. I did the billing, all that stuff, um, marketing myself. So I definitely always had an entrepreneurial mindset. 
I definitely saw the vision of being an entrepreneur. I also have experience in the corporate world too. I had part-time jobs in corporate type environments during undergrad and just seeing that too, I kind of knew that I wouldn't have as much creative freedom in those kind of positions as I would being being a CEO, being the founder of a mentorship business. So that's kind of how it came to be. Once I was in my master's, and a lot of that time was focused on research, but because I had always worked with students, either through tutoring or teaching, through student groups, just helping um, bring resources to students in that way, I was just really fixated on my passion for mentorship. And I just had a lot of creative ideas where I could bring these more accessible resources to life, create tech products, things like that, the podcast. So that's when I started to think about how I wanted that creative freedom. So after my master's, instead of continuing with research or academia, that's where I decided, okay, I'm going to try starting this startup and having this mindset for mentorship and leading it in that way. So yeah, I I definitely can see where throughout my life this could have been a a vision for me. I think you've touched on this a bit in your previous responses, especially describing your process of switching your area of study and going to different schools. But would you consider your career path today being the CEO of Ment to be a linear pathway or more meandering? Yeah, so I definitely would say that it's not linear in the sense that my interpretation of linear would be where I'm applying my technical skills as a trained chemist. So I'm definitely not working in a lab every day or thinking of how chemistry compounds can help with mentorship. Like, I think that would be something more linear. So in that way, it's definitely untraditional. But at the same time, I wouldn't be able to be where I am without my experience in a higher education system and specifically in STEM, too, because I think being in STEM, I was able to get exposed to a lot of different career paths and a lot of different steps that you have to take, internships, exchanges, things like that. So using those using that experience and that knowledge i've been able to see where i can help students and young professionals with mentorship and with career development and so if i hadn't gone through an undergrad in chemistry or a master's in chemistry i don't i wouldn't be able to be here Mm -hmm. today and also using a lot of the connections that i've made along the way Um, even just being here with the faculty of science i've definitely kept a strong connection to TMU, um, whether it be FOS or other other centers as well, like the Career Center. And again, I wouldn't have been exposed to all of these things without going through this. So in that way, I, I can see how it's definitely applicable and transferable going from something like chemistry to more tech. And I mean, I feel like I wear a lot of hats right mm-hmm. now, tech, producer with the podcast, CEO in terms of operations, leading everything, sales. So yeah, it's it's definitely applicable in that way, but I wouldn't say it's the most linear path, yeah. I really like that perspective on how one might define linear versus mm-hmm. nonlinear. Mm-hmm. And thinking of my own experience as well, it's very relatable in that, sure, my PhD was in the natural sciences and was focused in invasion ecology. And through that experience, I learned how much I enjoyed teaching and working as a TA and pursued that for years, teaching at the post-secondary level after finishing my degree. 
And now I'm back in a research-based position, but it's not an invasion ecology research group. It is a pedagogy-focused research group, which years ago I would not have imagined myself to be here. But like you said, those experiences build you and those skills are absolutely transferable. So Julia, what was your area of research during your master's degree? Yeah, so for my undergrad, like I said, I did chemistry. Um, as I started getting getting into my upper years, I kind of started to specialize more in organic chemistry, mm -hmm. just with the research that I was doing. I had Dr. Mark Adler, who's here at mm -hmm. FOS. He was my organic chemistry professor in second year, and he was looking for people to join his lab in the summer. I think it was actually a research course he was leading, so yeah. I started yeah. with that. After that, I continued as a volunteer. I also ended up doing my thesis with him. So he ended up becoming a really great mentor to me and still is. And he helped me as well with my transition into my master's, kind of looking at what opportunities I have, what options I should look at. And that's where I made the decision to go to UFT to work for Sophie Russo um, in organic chemistry. And so for my master's, I don't know how technical you want me to get, but we were mainly focusing on the synthesis of an organic molecule called cyclopropylamines. Um, and I was basically, so it's a compound that exists. There's synthetic routes to it already, um, but I was trying to install an organic group, a trifluoromethyl group on this compound, which has never been done before, or there's like rare cases. And so that was kind of the basis of my project there. Interesting, and it has a name that just rolls right, right off the top. <laughs> yeah, super easy. Um, it's so funny. I feel like organic chemistry is the class that everyone is like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then you get there and you start doing it and I just loved it. Okay, nice. I mean, it's like, it's because you can just like work your way through it, right? You know, yeah. eventually it just becomes like second nature, especially Orgo 1 yes. with all the mechanisms and the SM1s and the SN2s. If you practice enough, you can yes, learn it. It's kind of exactly. like math, which I really like. That's what I was going to yeah. say because I math was always my favorite subject and but I mean, I could have considered going into pure maths, but I think I like the application side of it and chemistry allowed for that. And then kind of as I was exploring the different types of chemistries, you have more theory based chemistry, more instrument based chemistry, mm -hmm. analytical chemistry, things like that. But yeah, organic was it was good if you kind of have that investigative side and you like those step by step procedures mm -hmm. that math kind yeah. of has, even though you're not doing math necessarily, the mechanisms kind of fall within those yeah. patterns. So yeah. I think that's why I gravitated to it at the beginning. Plus, yeah, having my mentor be in organic chemistry just kind of ended up in that research. It's also very visual, which yeah. I like. That's my favorite part about it. Mm -hmm. It's just the visual nature of it. Yeah, but it does get hard. Yeah, so, <laughs> it does yeah. get hard taking uh, organic <laughs> chem too. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say it got really hard for me in my master's. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'll just mention now I was actually enrolled as a PhD student. Oh, okay. So I went from undergrad to PhD. And at U of T, you have the option to then just change to a master's yeah. and leave after a year instead of... Um, five years and I ended up doing that for multiple reasons that we can get into but one thing is that the organic exams were hard they were really really yeah. hard and it's structured differently there um, versus at other universities mm -hmm. but 
yeah and that's when it started getting a bit more abstract to me and not not as much like math where there's certain patterns and procedures to follow yeah yeah I'll enjoy it for now I'll do my little chem minor it'll be cute we'll love it and then uh we'll never look at it again (laughs) you never know you never know you never know exactly yeah Although I do really appreciate both of you providing that more positive perspective of organic chemistry Mm -hmm. because it certainly carries a negative stigma. And I hear it over and over again. And I think that could scare off a lot of students from taking the course Mm -hmm. again due to that fear of failure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also, Julia, think you highlighted once again the importance of mentorship when you mentioned how Dr. Adler influenced your decision to pursue organic chemistry. But building on what you just said, you left us on a bit of a cliffhanger there. (laughs) So can you tell us about some failure related to your research? Yeah, so for my master's, I mean, research in general, if anybody listening has had any experience in research, they know that failure is a big part of research. 1,000%, (laughs) yes. So I already definitely had that exposure in undergrad, but I think in undergrad the stakes were a bit lower and maybe you're working more in a team. Also, my undergrad ended off with the pandemic, so things transitioned online and it was kind of okay if your thesis had holes in it, things like that. And for my master's, it definitely was different. The project that I was working on was really, really tough. Like I said, no one had made this molecule before, specifically the one that I was trying to make. And there's so much to say. There's times when you're spending all this effort doing research, literature research, trying to figure out how you can improve your synthesis, how you can improve your conditions. You go weeks altering it in different ways, you know, changing the temperature, changing the environment changing your reagents and still you're just left with starting materials or a spectra that looks like a mess and Mm -hmm. it's definitely not what you wanted and that was a lot of what I was experiencing but the thing is is that everybody goes through this and I think when it got hard for me was that it was it was going on for a pretty long time you know and it's hard when you see other people they only experience a couple weeks of trial and error and Mm -hmm. then it's working well um or they get added on to a project that's already working and they already have a foundation. I was not in that scenario. Um, and that definitely definitely was hard. So that was a part of my master's and research in general where you are facing the fear or facing failure because your reactions are failing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in those positions, I think for me, I was lucky to have a supervisor who was flexible and open communication and was understanding. And in those positions, there's different compromises that you can do. So I had a mentor within my group, um, a senior PhD student, and I ended up working with him on his project that was already working. He put a lot of time into making that work and he was at his final stages. So I came in and kind of just helped on the scope Mm -hmm. of it and um, that was beneficial to me because then I had that part of my thesis that I could write about and I still put in the parts of my project that didn't work because it you know will hopefully be useful for someone else they know not to try those things but yeah there's always those doubts of you know if someone else was working on this would they be able to do it better than me are my conditions actually correct but I'm just doing something wrong or 
if someone else did a literature research, would they find something that would work? And I'm not seeing it. There's always those doubts and it's so, it's so hard. But, you know, just try to use your support system to your advantage. And I was lucky to have Mike, who was my my mentor in the research group, and he was definitely really helpful. I'm thrilled to hear that you included your negative results in your thesis. Mm -hmm. That is so incredibly important. And it's just an ongoing problem in the sciences colloquially referred to as the file drawer problem where folks have negative results, they've run the tests, and it never gets published because it is so much more challenging to publish negative results, which is only doing harm to other researchers because we can absolutely learn from those failed experiments and utilize that information, save time, save resources on repeating something that Mm -hmm. someone else has already done. So that's something I'm always pushing for. And I think something that needs to continue to be addressed in the sciences, the ability to publish and uh, share those negative results with greater ease. Yeah, because when you're designing an experiment and you're designing it off of literature that you've read, like you don't you're missing out on that part like if they don't get results that you're looking for but you designed your experiment using their results then you're like wait what am i supposed to do here like what like where what am i missing and there is there's just this like whole area where you're like i have no nobody knows about this but Mm -hmm. it's so important there needs to just be one paper that's all like we didn't get the significant results that we hoped we would get but here's our methodology anyway. Like, I really want that to be a reality one day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because then it showcases how much you've put into mm-hmm. it too, yeah. right? Because exactly. otherwise, you know, if you're only going off of positive results and only publishing papers on that, it might look like you didn't really do that much work mm-hmm. if there was a lot of time spent on negative results, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be awesome if you could showcase both, not just through thesis, but through publications. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you talked a little bit about the failure that you experienced. Now, how did you respond to that? How did you bounce back from that disappointment? I think you kind of touched on it a little bit. Yeah, definitely having that support um, and knowing when to communicate with your supervisor. And yeah i mean there was definitely some narratives that i feel like i had to just break like Mm -hmm. i heard a lot of narratives at u of t where people did not want to go talk to their supervisor if it was only negative results Mm -hmm. they only wanted to talk to their supervisor if they had positive results or if they had already come up with a solution for the negative results Mm -hmm. and that was such a strange concept to me because if i'm not getting positive results and I need help with it, and I'm not, I've already found some improvements and they're not working. You know, that's where the supervisor comes in. And I also just feel like it's great to just have an open line of communication with the supervisor in general. It doesn't have to just be just the results of your research. So yeah, that was definitely something that I tried to break away from, even though there was a bit of a st- stigma that I noticed. Um, and that wasn't just at U of T, that can be, you know, anyone's preference mm-hmm. and I I also did a summer abroad at Oxford I didn't mention that but that was during my undergrad and they had that mindset too yeah. where we're not going to go to our supervisor unless we have 
ideas on how to improve this problem and I'm like but I need his help on how to improve it so yeah yeah. it's crazy and that's even like low-grade retail jobs and Mm -hmm. fast food and anything like that like when you're first starting out they're like why are you telling me about this why are you telling me about this issue it's like I I don't know because you're supposed to help me you're my supervisor yeah um and I think it kind of gets instilled in us in school too where it's like like for the longest time we're being told to ask for permission to do things and we're being told to you know ask if something is okay um and then we become adults and suddenly it's don't don't ask me mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. this yeah. tell me what you're gonna do about it you know and it's like what yeah <laughs> my whole life I've been told to ask yeah and after so many weeks of trying to solve the problem on your own oh, yeah. you know you go crazy. I can't bring solutions yeah. anymore yeah exactly you know? yeah there is that repeated mantra of don't come to me with a problem come to me with a solution Mm -hmm. yeah and i've heard that in more kind of corporate environments (laughs) um but it's interesting that you saw that same type of mindset in academia and i'm glad that your supervisor or the two of you had more open communication and could address that together because i agree that should be a critical role of a pi or a research supervisor to help the team brainstorm through those problems mm-hmm. yeah and it's also interesting because it wasn't the supervisor mm-hmm. that was ever putting this right, in. Right. even in oxford i never heard my pi in oxford say that it was the it was the researchers and my mm-hmm. colleagues who were saying that. So I was like, is this your mindset or the PI's mindset? And that's right. kind of where I just broke out of that yep. custom and just did my own thing and asked them for help. Yeah. How interesting. I wonder how that mindset was perpetuated. I don't, I don't know. It's, I it's guess probably we, some deep psychological. <laughs> we, need, we need a professional to dissect that because <laughs> it is very very common everywhere mm-hmm. i've everywhere i've been really yeah. even in my labs even my undergrad labs don't talk to the ta don't tell the ta we messed up so, yeah but but we should yeah. we yeah. really should so for ment projects as a business that is focused on mentorship career development is resilience and learning from failure important for your clientele oh of course i mean That's a lot of the conversation that I bring to the forefront in the podcast because so in the podcast, we go through our guests whole career journey. We start with their high school initiatives and then what they did in undergrad and grad school, if applicable, and then also in their industry positions as well. And we don't just talk on the surface, we get deep into it and we talk about the challenges that they face, whether it be professional challenges or their own personal challenges that then contributed Mm -hmm. to their path. And that's something that I want my audience to be aware of, that failure is important. It's an important part of your journey. This was actually something I talked about in my very first episode um, with Vanessa, who is the owner of The Math Guru, mm-hmm. a tutoring center. So we talked a lot about failure and how I just don't like the word because is it really failure if it's something that's helping you understand mm-hmm. your path and giving you information on how to pivot and navigate and how to improve. So that's something that I want to humanize more in the podcast for our listeners and knowing that it's going to be something that's a part of your journey And then also with the products that we're going to be releasing in the future, just helping our 
our audience understand how they can learn from their failures mm-hmm. as well and navigate from there too. Yeah. So it's definitely something that's important. Yeah, it is. It that's kind of it's funny if you look up failure, like it's like it says it's a social construct and mm-hmm. it and it's like perception and and what is it really, you know? And we use the word all the time. Everyone's like, "Oh, I failed. I took an L." Like whatever, you yeah. know? And it's like, "But did you? Did you really?" And I think something that we want to explore is like what that word means to everyone, mm-hmm. you know, because I think every single person has a different definition of what it is yeah um and so it's really important to yeah talk about it and talk about like how how it does it might change your path but it probably is changing your path for the better exactly yeah Yeah. um okay so i mean i can't this is overwhelming and we're (laughs) this isn't like our own business but this is kind of like this like our baby at this point Oh, a podcast can be a full-time job it's a lot of work so starting your own business can be like incredibly challenging it is a lot of work it Mm -hmm. is a lot of work it's Mm -hmm. a lot of like just sort of like being like hmm should I send this email should I not send this email yeah um have you experienced failures uh in this capacity like in meant for meant and making meant and what have you learned from it yeah so I don't think I can say that I've experienced failure in the sense that I've tried something and it didn't work Mm -hmm. maybe we're in two early stages to say that and mm-hmm. hopefully we won't be able to say that but I know it's part of the process. I think what I struggle most with is feeling like a failure yeah. or the fear of failure and what I've learned through this whole process I think we've seen a lot of startups that have become successful overnight. Mm-hmm. That's the ones that are, you know, at the forefront talked about the most. They become really successful in their first year, things like that. But that's not the general case. In reality, the most realistic perspective is that it does take time. And most startups do take time, and it's a slower start. And that's something that I'm just trying to learn to be patient with. Because, Mm -hmm. yeah, things take time. I can talk about that with even the podcast. You know, sometimes I just kind of see the numbers at a steady state and not really growing. And then there's that feeling of, am I not doing it well enough? Am I not promoting it well enough? Mm-hmm. Is What am I doing that's not good enough there? And then even with things like the tech products that we're working on, um, it's all behind the scenes right now. And it would be great to be able to release it within the first year but that's just not realistic it takes time to build these things it takes time for the designs to come into place for the engineering models to be completed and it can't really be rushed so but in those ways i'm trying to be strategic so that's Mm -hmm. why i released the podcast first to Mm -hmm. kind of get our name out there to build our audience in that way so that when our other products become available we already have that rapport Um, and just staying connected with my connections, like I mentioned here and at other universities too and other businesses. So, you know, in that way, you just have to be strategic and give yourself grace that what you're doing is is enough and you have to just be patient with the process because, yeah, I would have loved to to say, yeah, we launched earlier this year and everything's up and running yeah. and we have all these clients but it's going to take time and mm-hmm. i would say that's you know where 
I struggle the most and some weeks are great where I'm filled with all this motivation and I'm able to say to myself, this is great, like this is where the patience comes in and then there's other weeks where it's like, you don't feel that no, as yeah. as uplifted. So I would say that's probably where I struggle the most, but that's a part of being a founder of a startup, mm-hmm. being in the early right. stages. And, you know, in the next couple of years, we'll be able to look back on this and, and say, you know, look how far we've come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So earlier we spoke of our experiences as first-gen students and trying to navigate that transition to undergraduate degrees. What advice would you have for undergraduate students that are facing challenges? And can you recommend where they could turn for support? Yeah, so I think my biggest piece of advice that I give to my students even now is to get outside of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. and also um, to not limit your options. So to keep your doors open. So we kind of touched on that already, you know, choosing courses that are not going to close doors for you, even choosing undergraduate programs that are not too limited for you. Um, Or if you do have a specialized program, still being open to exploring different things in your internship, stuff like that, because you never know, you might find things along the way that incorporate your skills and passions in a totally different way that you realize. There's Mm -hmm. so many opportunities out there that we don't know about in high school and in first year universities. So to choose this set goal, I actually wanted to mention on the way here, I was taking the subway and there was a group of high school students talking about their courses. Mm -hmm. And one of them was saying, she said something like, if I don't do well in physics, if I fail this test, I'm just going to switch to bio and then my physics career will be done and I'm just going to go into dietetics. It was so, everything was so specific. Wow. (laughs) I wanted to go up to them so badly and be like, please listen to my podcast. (laughs) Um, But I didn't want to scare them. (laughs) But, you know, just like that, right? Don't close your doors so quickly. Mm -hmm. How she's thinking of closing the doors on physics and being so set on dietetics, does she even know what that means yet? You know, keeping those Mm -hmm. options open. In terms of getting outside of your comfort zone, there's so many opportunities that you can come across in undergrad and in grad school that just allow you to expand your horizons more. So I briefly talked about how I did a research experience at Oxford, and that was definitely getting out of my comfort zone, you know, going to a different country and going to a very competitive school, but giving myself that chance to even just do it and try, and that ended up being one of my best and most cherished experiences of undergrad. So yeah, you know, you places where you learn the most is when you're outside of your mm-hmm. comfort zone. Yeah. So those are definitely my pieces of advice that I always give and, and hope that students will consider. What advice do you have for students as they focus on their own career development and post-graduation plans? I mean, in terms of a career perspective, I would just say to really educate yourself on the different types of opportunities within one's Mm -hmm. career. I mentioned one of the guests we had who's a pharmacist, but he does a lot more outside of that as well. He works in pharmaceutical sales. He's worked in hospital pharmacy, clinical pharmacy, Mm -hmm. research, teaching. There's so much. So even if you're in a specific industry, take the time to connect with people, to learn about the industry, and see what opportunities are out there for you. Even if it seems so specialized, like how pharmacy did to me, 
all of a sudden there's just this like broad range of opportunities. So just again, kind of going back to keeping your options open and and being open to anything that comes your way. Amazing. Thank you so much, Julia, for your time and for joining us today on our podcast. We wanted to give you the opportunity to shout out any current projects or opportunities you have or anything you would like to share with our undergraduate focused audience. Okay, I appreciate that a lot. I would recommend following us on all social media. It's at Ment Projects on, on every platform, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, um, YouTube, everything. <laughs> and that's where we post all our updates and resources. Like I said, there's products coming in the future, so definitely stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. And then the Mentorship Podcast is available on all streaming platforms, so Spotify, Apple, um, also on our website, mentprojects.com, so you can check us out there. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. I'm very excited for the podcast. I'm actually like a little, I'm a little hooked already. So <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you so much. And uh, we will hopefully get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a great experience being on the other side of podcasting. <laughs> and it was such a first great guest experience for me. Thank you. Amazing. And that is a wrap on another episode of Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindsets. Another huge thanks to Julia for joining us. Next week, we have Dr. Eden Fussner-Dupas on to talk about the importance of undergraduate research opportunities, flipped classrooms, the Feynman principle, and her unconventional journey to becoming a professor. As always, we would like to extend our thanks to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for helping to make this podcast a reality, as well as our host, Toronto Metropolitan University. Finally, we would like to thank Kyle Andrews for putting together our theme music and teaching me how to speak into a microphone. And most importantly, we want to thank you for listening, and I can't wait for you to come fail with us next week. See you then. Bye. Bye.